We have um, Al Sergal here with us this morning. He's going to speak. Al and Nate and the kids are a great part of us and who we are and what we're doing. And um, let's do this. Let's stand up and pray for him together. Please. Father, thank you so much for Al and the family. And he's come this morning prepared to share, I believe, from your heart. And, Lord, we understand the kind of ideas, thoughts, and feelings we have before we speak (laughs) (laughs) that are rarely really good ones because the enemy doesn't like us doing well when we speak. Nevertheless, we believe you, we thank you, and we declare what you have given us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Robin. Amen. Good morning, everybody. How are you? If you don't mind, I'm going to stay in my jackets because I, I grew up in the Midwest, but I've been down south since 1990, so I have, the blood has thinned out for sure. Um, I'm so thankful for Queen City Church. Um, many of you, I, I just want, you know, this, this doesn't just happen. Do you understand? Like, you've got the worship team, guys that have put in countless hours of practicing their instruments and they, they take time to rehearse on Thursday and they cultivate something. They're, they are worshiping and preparing a way for us that we enter into on Sunday morning. And then you've got Chris and you, I, I, I saw the, I don't know the girl that's doing the PowerPoint, but she's back there worshiping as she clicks the words for us and countless volunteers that make this home for us. It doesn't just happen. It, it takes a community of people to build a community. And so I'm genuinely thankful. The, the nature of what I do puts me out and traveling on the weekends. So from my wife, for Nada and I and the family, to, for me to be gone and to know that my kids, uh, as long as we take them to Starbucks beforehand, want to come to church and they want to come to this church. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding, guys. I just, I just sold you out. It's all right. You need caffeine. It's good. Um, I'm just genuinely thankful for this community and how they love on our family. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really thankful for the opportunity to share. Um, I used to be on different church staffs. And just a quick aside, it was 15 years. I just thought about this during worship, and it was just, I can't not say it. So it might be a little longer than a short message just because of this, but I promise I don't talk very long. But during the worship, I was watching Casey and Julie. I told them I wouldn't say this, but I have to. It was in January of 2003. I had just been in a national drum competition with the Guitar Center. I was one of seven finalists, and I came in second. And uh, I had asked Casey and Julie. Remember, I, I had you guys lead worship at the Methodist Church. We had this once-a-month once gathering I was doing at the Methodist Church over at St. Andrews. And I asked them to do it because I needed to take the month off because I had this 30-day gig down at the Booth Playhouse. It was a it was a Broadway show. So I would go back and forth. And the drum-off had kind of taken me off course. I had... I had kind of lost my way with my faith. I wasn't praying as much. I wasn't really engaging with the Lord the way I knew I, I, I wanted to. Um, and I just happened to get this CD by this guy named Jason Upton. It was in a CD called Dying Star. And it was in the shrink wrap in my car. And it was just kind of sitting there in, in our CRV. And um, yeah, I have my CRV now. And uh, I decided to open it up, and I started listening to it, and I started praying again. And within two weeks of that, I had this experience in my car that I, it took me a couple of years to put language to it. 
And I'll talk more about this in the message. But several months after that experience, I decided I've never really personally gone to a conference. So I decided to go down to Atlanta and go to a passion conference. It was a conference called Thirsty. And um, I ran into Casey Clark. And he said, uh, he said, hey, man, it's great to see you. We hadn't seen each other in years. And he said, uh, yeah, if you're in the, you still live in Matthews? Yeah, I'm still living in Matthews. Well, I'm over at this church, Charlotte South Fellowship. And, you know, you know, anytime, we might need a drummer sometime. You know, so we exchange numbers. I'm like, cool, I'd love that. Well, two weeks later or something like that, you called me and like, hey, man, all, all of our eight drummers couldn't make it for this midweek service. Because you had quite the team at the time. And uh, he said, can you fill in? I did. He came over to the house. We rehearsed with, uh, what was the worship pastor's name? Michael. Michael came over and I started telling you my story. I told you like this crazy thing happened. I hadn't really told a lot of people because I woke up and guys, what I was kind of the kid in, in, I grew up Lutheran and the confirmation class, I didn't understand the Bible. It was like reading Shakespeare. It was like iambic pentameter. So rather than explain something, I would just, I would make wisecracks during confirmation class because I didn't understand the King James version. But the next morning after this thing happened in January of 2003, I, I was reading chunks of scripture and writing pages of journal entry. I just, I had no, but I had no context, guys. I didn't grow up in, a, in an evangelical community. I had no language for this. But anyway, Casey, uh, within a month of meeting Casey, he said, hey, there's this church, Charlotte North Fellowship. And there's some friends of mine that are here that were part of that community. And I just want to share that 15 years ago, the very couple that was leading worship were the people that helped me initiate and kind of opened up a door that God was planning on opening for me to be an active ministry. So thank you guys. Thank you, Casey. So this community is more special than you know. All right. Sorry for the long intro, guys. I had to do it. Last week, last week, Robin spoke about John the Baptist. And if you haven't heard that message Please go and listen to it. It was pure gold. It was like, it wasn't just about John the Baptist, but uh, Robin kind of became John the Baptist for me. <laughs> uh, what I mean by that is he sort of prepared the way. I mean, he really just like got things going. And as you can see by our wonderful graphic, I will be talking about Matthew 4 this morning. Specifically, I'm going to be in verses 1 through 11. So if you have a Bible or if it's on your phone, go ahead and get that ready. We're not going to quite jump into reading that yet. But I want the reason why I'm using this laptop is because every time I begin to process and prayerfully spotlight these encounters of Jesus, I do my best to shape the thoughts and images because I, I see things and then I, I want to put words to them. And as soon as that happens, every time, I'm immediately drawn closer into my own life. I'm immediately drawn into the fact that I'm actually dealing with what I'm about to talk about. So I want to, if you guys remember, I spoke on the Red Sea. I'm still dealing with my own Red Sea. And as I talk to you this morning, I want you to know that I'm talking from, I'm in the midst of this right now. And, and it's, just, it's just the Lord's goodness. It's his faithfulness. And it happens every time. So before I start, I'd like to end my sermon, if that's okay with you guys. Um, many of you already love me. That's great. Um, but uh, the sermon is short, but don't cancel your lunch reservations. So um, first and foremost, everyone in here, everyone, not just in here, but everyone is uniquely and wonderfully made. Now, some of you are like, that is super cheesy, Al. 
Some of you are. Some of you are immediately like, that's a bumper sticker. And there's a problem with that. Because you are uniquely and wonderfully made. Hear it. Let it go. Let it sink in. What happens is the, the tests, you've failed the test already. Sorry. You, you are uniquely and wonderfully made. Now, the second point I'm probably going to be making in the midst of this, I will be making, is that because of your unique identity, you will also be uniquely tested. If I had a warning label on this message this morning, it would be this. Because you are uniquely and wonderfully made and you have a unique calling that will, in fact, by faith, change the world around you, you will be uniquely tested. And I want to quote Robin. You quoted somebody else last week, Robin, but I'm quoting you quoting somebody else. You said, you never fail God's tests. You just retake them. The test, this test, the wilderness, the wilderness test that we will see Jesus experience in this passage is the test that you will retake as long as it is necessary. Just take it in. Just receive it. Soren Kierkegaard um, wrote an essay called Christ Has No Doctrine. And he said this in this essay. He said, to, be, to become a Christian is the ultimate. To want to understand Christianity, to understand it as some sort of doctrine, is open to suspicion. Now, I quote that because I know you know this, but to, to be a Christian is to be like Christ. It's to be like Jesus. It's to follow in his ways. And what that means, if we read Matthew 4 and we put ourselves into it, is it means that the core of our unique identity will not be in question until the world receives it. It'll be in question until we receive it. Let me say that one more time. To be Christian is to be like Christ. It's to follow in the ways of Jesus. We have to follow in his ways, which means the core of our unique identity will be in question not until the world receives it, but until we receive it. A calling isn't a calling until it's received by the one who is called. Do you hear me? Before we read, okay, we're going to get to the scripture, I promise. But I want to give you, a, I want to go back and look at Matthew 3. So Matthew 3 is over here. Matthew 4 is over here. Matthew 5 is over here. If you guys don't know me, I think visually. So you guys are like, there's this big whiteboard in front of you the whole time. So Matthew 3, John baptizes his cousin Jesus. The heavens part. And Jesus hears, he, Jesus hears this voice speak over him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, uh, there's a historian, an Anglican bishop named N.T. Wright. He's retired now. But I remember I, re, I read his book, The Challenge of Jesus, short, about two years after I got touched by the Holy Spirit in my car in January 2003. So this quote actually was, the, I read this quote and it actually gave me language. Just a personal side note. This quote gave me language for what happened in the car. So it's N.T. Wright. It's out of his book, The Challenge of Jesus. He said, throughout the synoptic tradition. Now, the synoptic tradition is the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are called the synoptic gospels. So he says, throughout the synoptic tradition, Jesus refers to John as the last great prophet, the Elijah who is to come. But if John is Elijah, that means that Jesus must at least be the Messiah. More specifically, there seems to be a reference to John's baptism as the time when Jesus was anointed with the Spirit for his new task. When in other words, he became the anointed one, the Messiah. Now, I didn't read that and go like, 
you know, I, I didn't realize I was the Messiah. I realized I'd been anointed for a new task. And so have you. If you've been baptized, there's been a vocational change. You've been presented with a new calling. So here's what we see in Matthew 4. So Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized and there's this new calling that's initiated, this vocational change. And then Matthew 4, we see him tested. And then right, that's only verses 1 through 11. Then we get to verses 12 through 25 and Jesus is immediately preaching. He's calling his disciples and he's healing people. If that's not enough, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he kind of recapitulates Moses' message in De- Deuteronomy, goes to a mountainside and proceeds to not just preach to the people of Israel. He preaches the sermon of all sermons for humanity, basically saying, hey guys, this is what it means to be human. And that'll be next week with John Mark. A new calling brings new tests, and it brings about new authority. Okay, one last practical. A new calling brings new tests, which brings new authority. All right, one last practical assumption. Guys, I want to let you know, um, it seems like every time I preach, I get some sort of health thing happen. Uh, I told Robin I wouldn't say this, but you know, the last time I had this thing with my hands, hands are good guys. Uh, this time it was, uh, leaking in my ears. I know. I mean, you just can't make this kind of stuff up. Um, so I'm on prednisone. This message this morning is provided to you by prednisone. So if I feel a little, if you, now you gotta know I'm vegan and I'm real, like not into doctors or medicine. So guys, I'm telling you, this is, I'm going to be drinking a lot of water. Just, just pray for me. All right. I wasn't going to say that. Darn it. All right. Okay. One more assumption before we dive into the text. Okay. I promise. Jesus knew that this wilderness experience was important for not only his disciples then, but for now. Why? Why? There were no witnesses to this encounter. What can we assume from that? We can assume that Jesus had to have told the disciples about this experience one-on-one. Why? Why would he do that? Because he knows at some point they are going to encounter it too. At some point, Jesus said, listen, I've gone through this and you need to know. And I'm sure he didn't say it like that because he, was, he wasn't reductive. He was very inductive. He's like, listen, you're going to go through this. So let me tell you about this. So now let's go to the text. Let's look at Matthew 4, verse 1 through 11. If you don't have it, it's on the screen. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put your Lord God to the test. Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. First temptation. If you are the son of God. If you're a son or daughter of God, if you actually are uniquely made, turn these stones to bread. Prove it. Prove it. Prove you're a son of God. Prove that you're called. 
Prove it. Do something useful. Do something that makes us need you. Do something that makes us want you. Prove it. Prove yourself. I'll never forget the first time I learned this lesson. Actually, the last couple of nights I've been playing with one of my favorite human beings, a guy named Chad Lawson. And we played, we had a trio in the early 2000s and we started it right before I had, I got touched by the Holy Spirit and in 2003. And we had gotten our first gig in New York City. And for jazz musicians, that's like a trip to Mecca, you know. So we were playing this tiny little Czech coffee house called Kava House, because I guess that's Czech for coffee. And uh, the fir- we had two nights. And the first night we, um, first night we played, and we, we basically said, hey, we went and tried to be New York City jazz. We just were like, let's go and be what we've always wanted to be. And we didn't play a single arrangement that was ours. We played chops and flash and thought we were doing what we supposed you know let's do new york the way new york wants new york and it flopped it was horrible it's horrible we went back, to, went back to the hotel we debriefed and we're like you know we, well, we just kind of realized like we didn't play any of the music that we play we didn't all the arrangements we've worked on all the stuff that we've cultivated and practiced that people liked in charlotte you know so the next night we said you know we're gonna let's just be ourselves and it went great. The next night, we people responded. They liked it. And the thing I've realized about New York, I've also realized this about Amsterdam and other places like that, is the reason why you, if you make it there, you can make it anywhere, which I don't know if there's any truth to that or not, <laughs> is because if you can just be okay with being yourself for the first 5 to 10 to 15 minutes, that's actually what they're looking to see if you're willing to do. They want to see if you are willing to be yourself because they have seen it all. But the reason why they've seen it all is because that all was willing to be itself and not prove itself to you. So the first test is going to be prove yourself. Now think about this. When Jesus heard the words, behold, this is my son in whom well pleased. What had Jesus done? That's a good bracelet. (laughs) What, What had... What had Je- I mean, really, like, what had Jesus done up to this point? I mean, we we know very little about Jesus's life up to this point. I, we know, I mean, we know the story when he was twelve. Why have you come to my father's? House? You know, he's thirty. He's a carpenter's son. He's from Nazareth, and I don't mean to downplay it because he is the Lord. So please have grace with my humor. But to the average person on the street, he's a totally regular dude with no public achievements. And as Robin said last week, he probably grew up with a lot of the disciples that ended up following him. I, you know, I mean, do you think there's a few things that might have happened that might have made Jesus look a little less Messiah-ish? I mean, no baggage there, not at all. And, you know, I, when I was thinking about this thing and, and what happened in Matthew 3, you know, quick side note, for thousands of years in the Old Testament, humanity would often choose a father more than a king. And, and the thing about kings is kings love people because they're useful. And I think our reasoning for why humanity tends to pick kings is because we understand this exchange. We understand the, the, the transaction, that conditional love. We actually understand that more than a father's love. A king's love, they love you because you're useful. Fathers love you because they love you. It has no condition. It's unconditional love. So there are many reasons that when, when in Matthew 3, when that, comes, when that happens, it sets up 
Matthew 4. And one of those reasons, is, I think in my opinion, is to establish that God's love for Jesus has, was not based on Jesus' youthfulness. It was not based on what he could, would, or should do. It's completely relational. God was Jesus' father, and as his father, he was pleased with him. And it had nothing to do with his accomplishments. And I want to make, we, we do not think that G, the time that Jesus was living was not like today. It was exactly the same. You were, it, it was all about doing things, accomplishing things, and achieving things. So as much as the first temptation is about questioning your identity and questioning Jesus' identity, it's a little deeper than just questioning identity. It's also about questioning his relevance. And you will always be questioned like that. Like, why are you, why are you the son of God? Why you? What have you done? What makes you worthy? What makes you relevant? What makes you useful? I mean, do something. Man, I mean, do something, prove yourself. The, the, the thing is the devil, just like with Jesus and with us, the devil sees the threat of this new identity. The, the devil sees the threat of this new calling and he comes attacking. He attacks Jesus with sort of a below the belt, cheap miracle with this throwback language to the old manna days. You know, it's like, it's if he says to, the, he says to Jesus, okay, if you're called to be the Messiah, make some bread or something anointed one make some bread but you know be the messiah that we want be be that messiah the one that's useful the one that we understand be a useful messiah and the thing about being useful is it it works in our culture it works in our culture but it does not necessarily work with a life of faith there's not one person in this room today that doesn't deal with some type of insecure inner dialogue when God asks you to trust him more as he speaks over you that he's pleased with you, then calls you into something new. Before I hit 40, I, I would validate my life often with my useful, use, usefulness, what, what I would do and how I would contribute. And the kids were young and they thought I was a superhero and all things were good. And then I, and then I went over 40, <clears throat> 46 now, and now the questions are like, have I done anything? Am I useful at all past paying for groceries? Um, will I ever make any contribution? What have I done with my life? And all the while, I've got four beautiful kids. I've got a beautiful wife. I've got a ton of good friends that would love to hear from me if I would just pick up the phone rather than stare at my phone. <laughs> and yet... Our current time or this age has us convinced that our identity and our value is completely summed up in what we do. Our identity and value is, has become synonymous with usefulness. And our identity and value has been what we do. And this is how Jesus responds to that. One does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Our identity is not doing. It comes to us. We receive it. This is my son and daughter in whom I'm well pleased. The father came to the son. Our identity and our calling, it's a blessing that's received, not achieved. Temptation number two. A little water. Prednisone. Temptation number two. If you're the son of God. If you're the son or daughter of God, if you're uniquely made and called to something, 
throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. In the early, in the early 2000s, I worked behind, um, at a Methodist church, and uh, the pastor, when he would preach on Matthew 4, he had these cool bullet points on temptations. And I'll just tell you, they were really cool. Temptations are subtle. Evil is much too clever to be obvious. And temptations will seem worthwhile. And temptations can even look pious. If you are the son of God, not only prove yourself and do something, but do something spectacular. Do something that grabs everybody's attention, Jesus. Prove God. Prove it. Prove yourself and prove God. I mean, if you actually don't live on bread alone, Jesus, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, then prove God. Have him save you. I mean, and that, that sounds worthwhile. And I'm not coming against anybody who's in apologetics at all. Proving God. But proving God is not the same as trusting God. Our thoughts about God are not the same as our acts of daily trusting in him. The devil is slick. The devil quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus, but it's out of context. He cleverly grabs some scriptures in the middle of this beautiful poem that makes God seem more inclined to bail out those he calls rather than bless those he calls. Dallas Willard talking about Psalm 91 said this, Psalm 91 reminds us of a child walking with the parent and making every effort to stand the parent's shadow. It also hints of a condition where the child is so uninhibited and in love with the parent that he or she has no desire for public recognition. Question, have you ever manipulated anybody? Have you ever, have you ever manipulated your dad? Ever? How did it make you feel? Throwing yourself down from anywhere is, is manipulation. It's manipulation. It's like the Ferris Bueller sweaty palm technique. If you think about that movie, Ferris just manipulated all sorts of people. Don't think about that. Anyway, you guys haven't seen Ferris Bueller? What kind of church is this? I can't, I can't deal with my non-80s people. I'm just kidding. Okay, sorry. Jesus, now we know because Jesus said this himself. Jesus came to, he came so that the blind could receive sight, that the lame could walk, that those who have leprosy were cleansed, the deaf would hear and the dead are raised and the good news would be proclaimed to the poor. The thing that Jesus didn't come to do would be like the first century David Blaine of magic tricks. So Jesus, first of all, is not gonna manipulate his calling. That's the thing he's not gonna do. He's not gonna manipulate his calling. Don't manipulate your calling. That's what I'm trying to say. And Jesus is not going to manipulate the father simply to prove his dad or himself. The very words and promises of Psalm 91 poetically describe the actual fruit that comes from a trusting relationship. It says this, it says, those who live in the shelter of the most high, those who abide in the shadow of the almighty and who will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress in my God in whom I trust. You don't throw yourself down from the fortress when you recognize that God is your fortress and your refuge in whom you trust. Be careful when you take scripture out of context. It can sound clever. How did Jesus reply? Do not put the Lord God to the test. It's as if Jesus is saying to the devil, don't make this about something else. Don't. Don't make this about something else. Jesus is boldly looking at the devil and saying, don't make this test about God. You keep it focused right here because what I'm called to do is worth the test. 
Jesus trusts the father so much because he realizes the more he is tested, the more it only affirms that he is absolutely called by God for something only he can do. Are you suicidal this morning? Are you, is your marriage taking a toll right now? Are there dreams that are bugging you and haunting you? Jesus trusts the father so much because he realizes the more he is tested, the more it only affirms that he is absolutely called by God for something that only he can do. If you're suicidal, that is a test. Why? Because we need you here. That suicidal thought should just be an affirmation that your life matters so much that the devil is testing you because you've got something you need to do for the kingdom that only you can do. And I break that off of you in Jesus' name. If you're dealing with that right now, it's an illusion. It's a test. Wake up. It's an affirmation from God. Flip it. Jesus, turn the table all the time. Turn it. That's what Jesus does. Resurrection turns the table on the devil. He has no idea what to do. If your marriage is a failure, oh my God. If you're having a problem with your marriage, come on, guys. What represents the kingdom other than two people coming in union and creating life? If it's under attack, it's only to affirm you that your marriage is going to bless generation to generation to generation. And you have no idea when you're walking around the mall and your kids are being nasty and crabby and people are like, I will never. You're blessing people because they see life. People resonate with life, guys. They resonate with it. They will, they will, I mean, South Park, they'll snob you all day long. But in the inside, they're like, I remember, you know, they, they remember. And if you've got dreams, oh, get me started on that. If you've got dreams that are haunting you, those dreams that are like, man, I got it. Those dreams, you've got to go after them. Here's why. And this is, this is part of the reason why I love this community. You've got to go after them because when you go after them, you give people permission to go after them too. When I see my buddy Adam start doing marriage stuff around the church and I, I've seen his life, I've seen him go and do, count, I, he moved to LA, got his master's degree in counseling. When he starts doing that stuff and I see John Mark or Andy or any one of you do a record and I haven't done a record yet, I'm only jacked up and inspired to do something. And we should be encouraging that all the time because if you've got dreams, those dreams are for this place. They're for this church to impact our city. It's not just making records. It's like anything. Go after it. And the reason why you are, it's tested is because God is affirming it so much. I can't stress enough. Jesus and we should trust the Father so much because the more we're tested, it is only an affirmation that we have something we need to do. These things go kingdom viral when we let them go. Do you understand? They go kingdom viral. Third temptation. Gotta take a break. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. I mean, if the first two temptations weren't enough, the devil offers Jesus all the kings of the world if he'll worship him. Again, temptations are clever. And what seems like like it's hanging in the balance is in this third test is the first and second commandments. But it's not really hanging in the balance when you don't compromise principles. When I started working with Jason... His father-in-law was kind of mentoring me, and he, and he said to me, he said, you know, you don't need to pray about principles. So if you make, he said, if we, if we set aside the weekend, and it's family time, and someone asks to schedule Jason that weekend, we're not available. 
you don't have to pray about whether you're going that weekend. You simply say, we have these dates available, and if they take those dates, then it was the Lord's will. And if they're not going to take those, we don't go. It's like, that's pretty simple. I like that. (laughs) These are principles. You shall have no other gods before me. That's a principle. You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So the first test, prove yourself. The second test, prove your father, prove God. Now the third test is like, prove me. Validate me as God. It's like the devil's like begging Jesus to validate the way of this world and validate the kingdoms of this world. I mean, which give what? Fear, anxiety, depression, scarcity, death. Oh, sign me up, man. Sign me up. These things are absolutely contrary to the very nature, character, and principles of God and his kingdom. And so Jesus is like, I don't know why, but when I was reading this, I was like, this was so abrupt. Jesus is like, away from me, Satan. Like, you've got nothing to get. You've got nothing on me. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left and the angels came and attended to him. I can't stress enough. It is important. It's important that we allow these tests to be our teacher and for us to push through them and help each other push through them to the very end of the testing until those tests have taught us everything they were meant to teach us. There's great wisdom in the words of Jesus when he said, "Bless, uh, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. Why? Because they have much to teach us about them but even more so about ourselves. In the book of Hebrews, it says this about Jesus. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus suffered just like us, and he did not sin. A simple definition of sin that I want to use here is is not being your true self. When you're not yourself, you're actually walking in some type of sin. And I want to get heavy on that. But Jesus, throughout the temptations, was himself. Now, the gospel account, the, the gospel of Luke, the account of the temptations, it says this, and it really unlocks some different things for it. It says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from in, until an opportune time. Now, some teachers take this scripture and kind of, they, it, they, th- they feel like it indicates that there might have been more than one temptation, which for me is, it's kind of cool because I mean, he was in the wilderness for 40 days and it's not impossible to think that there were possibly more than three. And for me, it unlocks, it just blows my mind because what I see in Jesus throughout these temptations is a concrete resolve, a completely guys for have you, I've never fasted 40 days. I'm not going to, I'm not spiritual. I'm sorry. But I mean, my blood sugar would be ridiculous. Uh, I don't even know. I would have to leave the house for sure. I definitely have to go to the wilderness because, because that's the only place I'd be able to exist and not hurt and not, not hurt everybody around me. So Jesus is hungry. He's tired. He has every excuse to lose it. And yet not only, not only is he not tempted, but he replies to the devil in a completely congruent and consistent way that we see throughout the rest of his ministry. He had become, as the Hebrew writer said, Jesus through this process had become the, the precise representation of God the Father. In closing, I, I have to say, and I got to admit, I've read Matthew 4 uh, for many years and often 
I would read Matthew 4 and I'd read Jesus' replies and be like, what? <laughs> I would just be like, well, I don't even get it. And um, I, you know, I knew I, I've been working on this message for about a month. And this last week I, I happened to, I needed to drive Becca, my youngest daughter, up to Concord. She's a cheerleader and we had to go up back and forth. I'm like, let me find a podcast on Matthew 4 to see. So I found this like old Catholic priest um, and it was super boring. It's a super boring podcast. I, Becca made it, but and and I was like one of those things that was going in the back of my mind. The more he talked, it just unlocked things for me. And as I close, I, the more I looked at, and as this guy was talking, I started doing voice memos because I was just the Lord. I felt like God was giving me a bigger insight into these temptations. The thing I noticed about the devil's questions was they're always asking him to Jesus to do something. And Jesus' response showed full union with the Father. And what I mean by f- full union was he was practicing this verse that we've, seen, we've heard throughout our Christianity. Be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know. Jesus is practicing this. Be still and know I'm God. Be still and know. Be still. Be. Because being with the Father is union with the Father. Jesus was at rest in being. So follow me here as I close. The the Father blesses Jesus after he comes out of the baptismal waters. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And at the point of these three tests, Jesus' reply seems to be, I am. If you're the Son of God, prove it. I am. If you're the Son of God, who will save you? I am. If you're the son of God, who will you trust? I am. I am this, this great community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I am the very thing God called himself when he first met Moses. Moses is the very person who Jesus quotes in each of his replies to the devil. One does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do not put the Lord God to the test. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus, the new I am, responds to the devil's test with the very words from Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy. Moses, the last father of our faith in the Old Testament. The same Moses who saw the burning bush was called to free the people. And within a few verses asks God this. Suppose I go to Israelites and they say to me, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? (laughs) In other words, Moses is like, if I get tested, what do I say? God says this to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. When Jesus replies with I am, he is reminding the devil that he had no authority then. He has no authority now. And soon enough, he will never have authority again. We're the first son, the first son, Adam, had failed in the garden. The second Adam, Jesus, will not fail. The devil's tests only affirmed Jesus's readiness for authority. And if you, oh man, and they will do the same for you if you allow them to. A new calling, a new season in your life will bring new tests. You have to let these tests do their work. You got to see them as a wilderness experience that's preparing you for new authority that is meant not only to free you, 
but free people around you and to free your family. Your willingness to embrace these tests and push through them will, will transform your life into a living gospel. Your life will literally speak to people, oh death, where is thy sting? You will free people by your very presence because you will ooze the gospel. All authority has been given to Jesus in the midst of the great I am community, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the same authority that we've been given as we've been grafted into this same community. Do you, do you know that? We've been given this authority. Again, to be, to be Christian is to be Christ-like. It's to be like Jesus. It's to follow in his steps. It's to follow in his rays. And, but we have to understand, and you've got to come to the realization that the core of our identity will be in question not until the world receives it, but until we receive it. A calling isn't a calling until the one who is being called receives it. Today's your day. It's happening right now. He's calling you. He's asking you to receive the call. He's asking you to endure the tests. He's asking you to see through the illusion of the test and realize it's just cloaked as an affirmation to the authority he wants to give to you. He's asking you to be bold and receive the authority, the authority that has been yours since the very beginning. He formed you in your mother's womb. He gave you authority there. Jesus himself is reminding you that God's first response when he created us was very good. When Julie was singing that this morning, he wants to say that over to you again. Don't confuse the story, guys. It starts in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. You've been created for good. He meant you for good all along. And you must remember that a calling isn't a calling until it's received by the one who's being called. A new calling brings new tests, and a new calling brings new authority. Which will you receive today? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for... I thank you that you endured the test. I thank you that you showed us that you turned the table on tests. You turned the table on trials and tribulations and showed it that it is part of the resurrection cycle. That is, as Eric said earlier, it's, it's that we see that through death comes new life. There's not a moment in time, Jesus, where you're not reminding us that if we're willing to take on this death, we will receive new life on the other side. And it is a cycle that continues until we grow in wisdom and we grow in maturity and we learn to know you before we get to be with you forever. So Jesus, this morning, there are people that are in here that are being tested. I pray, Lord, that you would comfort them. But more importantly, God, I pray that you would give them the boldness and the eyes to see that these tests are merely a way of affirming that they've been called into this. And they're going to be given a new authority on the other side of this, God. I thank you for this morning. We thank you, Jesus, that we can learn so much from your life that we can put into our life. Help us this week, God, to, to see our lives as a calling to affect others around us. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Yeah. Ow, come here. Thank God for this guy, right? This is Al Sergal. Give him a big, 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 huge round of applause. That was awesome. You did so good. You did so good. Man, Al.
So awesome. I remember uh, Al and I used to get together, get together in the 2000s uh, infrequently for bad tacos and uh, talk about some of this stuff. <laughs> and, uh, man, I was just um, listening to him, and he was burning my house down and um, in a good way. And I was just thanking God for just, you know, all the ways that God's faithful, you know? You see these, you, you grow up with these people, and then they become you know, just shining lights. And, you know, he's got his own path and all that. And I'm sure that he would probably disagree with me, but Al is like top, top, top shelf material. And it's so cool to see that. And I know that throughout this whole congregation, they're all of you guys top shelf. It's so cool. It's so cool. All right. Well, um, what a great call that Al's put down uh, today. And for this week, I think, I think for all of us, it is to respond in our own tests to say, to, to be still. That's right. That's right. This week. All right. So we do have um, some ministry team members, uh, I believe. So if, uh, if the ministry team members would come up to the front and anyone who needs any prayer or ministry, please come up to the front and you guys uh, can receive that. Um, otherwise, go in peace. All right. Have a great week. <laughs>